Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll discuss meningitis, who should be on guard for this disease, and the important role that vaccines play. Um, the immediate response is important because we want to give antibiotic prevention or antibiotic prophylaxis to those who were the droplet recipients from that individual. Plus, researching ways to prevent and treat shingles. If you live to be 80 years old, your chance of shingles is about 50-50. And that's a, that's a lot of people. And we'll learn about retinal cell research and its significance. The stem cells that we're using, they're coming from a frog embryo, believe it or not. We can easily isolate those cells, and those are stem cells. We can make them muscle, we can make them skin. We'll get a checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, one out of three Americans will get shingles. We'll hear about some new treatments for that painful condition, plus some breakthrough retinal research that could combat blindness. But first, certain types of meningitis can kill. Do you know the signs? Well, in the last 20 years, close to 1 million suspected cases of meningitis were reported among the countries of the African meningitis belt, including approximately 100,000 deaths. So what do we need to know about this potentially deadly disease and what can be done to prevent it and to treat it? Here with some answers is Dr. Joseph Domikowski. He's a pediatric infectious disease specialist and the director of the Global Maternal Health and Pediatric Health Program at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Domikowski. Thanks so Thanks. much for coming in. You bet, Linda. Always Thank a you. pleasure to have you here. Um, let's begin by helping our listeners understand what we mean by meningitis. What exactly is it? Yeah, men meningitis is inflammation of these membranes around your brain. They give you, uh, when they get inflamed, they give you a nasty headache. Um, sensitivity to bright light, and usually a fever. So I understand, and this is something that's come up many times when I've talked about meningitis in the past, that there are more. there's more than one kind, one kind being very serious and one less so. Help us understand the differences. Yeah, so bacterial meningitis, which is the really scary stuff that you hear about, these outbreaks at university campuses, that's bacterial meningitis. That's the stuff that can rapidly progress and cause serious injury, even death, very quickly. Then we have the, what we call the aseptic meningitis, usually caused by viruses, but there are certain kinds of bacteria that can cause aseptic meningitis. And Milder, but still very unpleasant. Unpleasant, but not life-threatening. Correct. Okay, so the bacterial is the one you really have to watch out for and Absolutely. be very concerned about. So, I mean, when we talk about the bacterial meningitis, what kinds of bacteria are responsible? Are they everywhere? I mean, where do these exist, these bacteria? I mentioned, for example, this African meningitis belt. So obviously there are some bacteria that are prevalent in certain parts of the world. Help us understand what they are. Yeah, the meningitis belt in Africa, they're talking mostly about meningococcal meningitis. 
um, but also pneumococcal meningitis. And just what is the distinction between those? Uh, they're, they're both very aggressive pathogens that cause serious disease, including meningitis. And in that area in Africa, they have very high rates of infection. We don't have that, that same particular type of um, meningococcus in the United States, and but we have relatives. And that's a bacteria. Those are all bacteria. So what yeah. you're just describing, the more serious types that occur, for example, on that African belt are basically bacteria that will cause the meningitis and can be life-threatening. That's correct. Okay. So in the United States, what's the prevalence of bacterial meningitis, the more serious kind? It's actually quite low, and it's lower than it has been historically. Uh, we're at the lowest rates ever. And that speaks to the success of our vaccine programs because we have vaccines, very effective vaccines, against the most common causes of bacterial meningitis. Okay, I'm going to talk to you more about I want to find out more about the whole vaccination program because obviously that's very, very important in terms of prevention. Um, what basically there's some variety or some variability in terms of what age groups or the kinds of bacteria that strike different age groups. Is that true? Absolutely true. You know, in newborns, we're always very concerned about things like group B strep meningitis. Um, in, in later infancy and in childhood, that's a very uncommon cause of meningitis. Um, but pneumococcal meningitis, this streptococcus pneumoniae, it's a relative of the bacteria that causes strep throat, that's the one that is common across all age groups. So that one you really want to be on the alert for because it can really affect everyone. So let's talk about who's most at risk. I mean, you know, we mentioned newborns, for example. Obviously, you would think that a newborn baby would be highly uh, vulnerable if, if, if infected. But what are the kinds of factors that, that determine risk? Age, the very young, the very old. Those who are under-immunized, either because they're too young to have received their full complement of vaccines, um, or are not vaccinated at all for whatever reason. Um, in some circumstances, people have medical conditions that place them at increased risk for bacterial meningitis. They're, some underlying kind of comorbidity, something? Yeah, or their that? immune system just doesn't know how to recognize it and fight it off. Or even um, something fairly simple like they don't have a spleen. The spleen's very important as a, uh, an immune organ to prevent meningitis. Does that run in family? I don't mean the issue of a spleen, obviously, but... Can, can, is there a genetic predisposition or have they ever seen any kind of hereditary pattern where people are more likely to be susceptible to something like meningitis than others? Uh, there are certain uh, inborn or inherited immune deficiencies that can run in families that place them at increased risk for all sorts of invasive bacterial infections, including meningitis. But there's also a very rare um, complement deficiency that places people at specific risk for meningococcal meningitis. When you say a complement deficiency, help us understand what you mean. Yeah, the complement is, are, these are proteins, they're part of your immune systems um, that help prevent certain types of infections or to um, fight certain types of infections. And we know that um, very specific protein deficiencies, extremely rare, but if you have it, you're a very high risk for um, developing meningococcal meningitis. And that's the bacterial kind. Bacterial so that, kind. So that really puts you at great risk for it could be life-threatening, basically. Yes. What are some of the other factors that play a role? You said medical conditions. How about you mentioned college campuses before. Why would you be more apt to pick this up 
in that kind of a setting? Is it the close quarters? Is it the shared dorm? You know, the shared bathrooms, dormitories. Help us understand so, that. all of the above. So, well, what we learned um, several decades ago in the military barracks: if you take young, healthy adults and you bring them from different parts of the United States all together in the same place, and they're living very in very close quarters, you're stressing them because they're in boot camp and their um, immune systems get stressed from the. Uh, the, um, the job that they have to right. do, mm-hmm. um, that outbreaks of meningococcal meningitis are particularly high in that circumstance. College, go ahead, college go ahead. campuses have uh, catered residence halls that aren't that much different, if you think about it, from a military barracks. It, that sounds very like, very, very analogous, actually. Yeah. Uh, so we know that in a, um, a catered residence hall on a college campus, the rates of meningococcal meningitis are about 16 times higher than in the general population. Wow, that's very significant. How about parts of the world? I mean, we've mentioned the African belt, and we mentioned uh, you know, that it's lower here in the United States due to prevent- preventive measures. But you know, is it generally that some of these kinds of diseases are more prevalent kind of in as you said, the African belt or other parts of the world? Yeah, so the meningitis belt right across sub-Saharan Africa, even um, if you continue that right across into Asia, there are certain types of meningococcal infections that are much more common in those areas. So if you're going to travel there, make sure you're immunized. I think that's a crucial point. (laughs) If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with infectious disease expert Dr. Joseph Domakowski. We're talking about meningitis. So what are the signs and symptoms? You mentioned earlier you get a, a roaring headache. How do you know you have meningitis? Uh, Well, usually you'll have a fever, and then your head will start to hurt, and often your neck will get very stiff where you can't bend your chin right down to your chest. Um, That that is a a consequence of having meningeal inflammation. These membranes around your brain are inflamed, so anytime you stretch them by moving your head around, moving your neck around, uh, it causes extreme pain. Is that irrespective of whether it's bacterially a based or virally based? Would you have the similar symptoms regardless of the type? Similar symptoms, but they do tend to be more severe um, and more rapidly progressive from bacterial infection. How about light sensitivity? Um, very common. So we call that photophobia. You know, you're afraid of the light. You just want um, you want a quiet room. You want to be in the dark, and you, you don't want any bright lights because they will make your headache so Sounds much like worse. Sounds like me with a migraine. <laughs> it, it, it's much like a migraine headache. Yes, exactly. Right. So, um... Basically, if you were to have and su- survive, obviously viral, you do survive in most cases, but if you were to have bacterial meningitis and survive it, are there long-term effects of this kind of inflammation of the meninges around the brain? Absolutely. So in the most serious circumstances, people die from bacterial meningitis. For those who do survive, the most common complication is hearing loss or even deafness. But we also know that if you develop bacterial meningitis as a young child, there are developmental difficulties that happen along the way. And we only know what those are as we follow the child as they're growing and developing. For adults, they may have very serious um, brain injury in the form of a stroke. It looks very much like a stroke. So there are all sorts of neurologic complications that can happen. And those don't necessarily disappear. I mean, they are long la- they potentially very long-lasting. Uh, many are permanent. About one in five with bacterial meningitis will have a, a long-term permanent consequence from it. So how is it spread? 
In other words, we know those bacteria are out there in some parts of the world or in college campuses or whatever. What's the method, the means of spreading the disease? So for the three big ones, the three bacteria that are most commonly causing men bacterial meningitis, uh, these are bacteria that normally inhabit the, the nose and the throat of human beings. It's just that if you are one of these carriers... You're not sick because your immune system has seen it already and you're already protected. So there are that, I want to just kind of interrupt you here. So there are people who are carriers, much like typhoid Mary way back, that whole story about someone who could basically spread the disease but never be ill from it. And those exist in, in, in bacterial meningitis as well. That does happen, yes. And that's exactly where these bacteria come from, from the nose and throat of people who aren't even sick. Wow. And so, but it's spread in what way? Is, is it the secretions? In other words, is it the kind of thing that if you've washed your hands in the same sink, let's say in a dorm room, and that person has sneezed into the sink, for example, that you might then pick up those droplets and be infected? Is that the idea? So in the medical term for it is droplet spread, but that means to be in close enough proximity to the person that has that bacteria, either from being a carrier or from being infected with it. And they're coughing, singing, sneezing, otherwise, um, you know, releasing exuding, those droplets. these droplets into the air. Yeah. Exactly. And then you have to be basically the recipient of those droplets in real time. It's not like... It can live, or can they live for periods of time on surfaces? No, you need to inhale them as they are floating through the air. That's what droplets um, are. So you have to be in close enough proximity to the person while they are um, exuding these. So are, co are college campuses, places like that, do they take adequate precaution in terms of if, if a case is identified? I would think from everything I've heard and you've talked about in other types of infectious diseases, there's a certain kind of... Um, uh, protocol that is undertaken to kind of isolate people and make sure that anyone who's come in contact with them is kind of kept away from other people. Right. So uh, especially for meningococcal meningitis, because it is so rapidly progressive and has such a short incubation period, that's the one that's usually happening that we hear about on the college campuses. So the first time that happens on a college campus, that um, particular individual is going to be hospitalized because they're very sick. Um, the immediate response is important because we want to give antibiotic prevention or antibiotic prophylaxis to those who were the droplet recipients from that individual, the roommate or anyone else who had very close contact with that individual. So it's almost like it's, a, it's an attempt to control. I know there's certain terminology you use in infectious disease, but you do certain kinds of control actions where you identify the likely potential candidates and then you give prophylactic therapy to them, much like you might even do with a Zika virus or something of that nature. Um, exactly. So that we know that the close contacts for this infection need to get antibiotics in a short period of time because if they were exposed and that bacteria is incubating in them and planning to cause a problem for them, antibiotics will prevent that from happening. So that's the question. So then we're talking about treatment. So are, do we have adequate? I know there's always been this talk about antibiotic resistance and strains of various types of these bugs that are kind of now superbugs and they're resistant to these uh, antibiotic tool toolkit that we have. Currently, do we have adequate antibiotics to fight men meningococcal meningitis and others of that nature? Meningococcal meningitis, uh, from a medical standpoint, is easy to treat. The, the common antibiotics that we would 
use in someone who we suspected had bacterial meningitis before we knew that it was meningococcal will always still work. So we really have, we have the, the armamentarium to basically fight meningitis currently. Yes. If we, if we recognize it quickly enough, we can fight it. That's correct, yeah. But how about prevention? In the little bit of time we have left, we talked about vaccination. Give us an overview of what's happening in terms of vaccines. Who's getting vaccinated, how frequently, and how effective is it? So we um, implemented in the U.S. Haemophilus influenza B vaccine in the 1980s. We implemented pneumococcal vaccine in the 1990s, and we introduced meningococcal vaccine in 2005. So those are the three big players, and we have vaccines that can protect against them. So, so we are immunizing the, um, the young children and the infants as appropriate, and for the adolescents and the, the teenagers, we're giving them the meningococcal vaccine. And so basically there is a vaccination protocol, and people, I think the bottom line needs to be underscored here, is that vaccines save lives and that people really need to follow their, their, the protocol for those kinds of vaccinations that their pediatricians or their general internists recommend. In every single country where these vaccines have been implemented, rates of bacterial meningitis have dropped like a stone. Wonderful news. Thanks so much for coming in. You're always incredibly informative. My guest has been Dr. Joseph Domikowski, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist and the Director of the Global Maternal Child and Pediatric Health Program at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Coming up next, one out of three Americans will get shingles in their lifetime. We'll get some new treatments for that painful condition. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Shingles is a painful skin rash that can have debilitating effects on sufferers, especially older adults. Here with more on this disease and some new research efforts to fight it is Dr. Jennifer Moffitt, Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming in, Dr. Moffitt. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So you've recently embarked on a project to test some new drugs to treat shingles. Tell us about that. Yes, I'm part of a nationwide group that is uh, tasked to identify new antiviral drugs, test them, and then uh, hopefully enter those drugs into clinical trials. So let's start by helping people understand. I, I know it's often bandied about. There's a lot of ads on television about shingles. What exactly is shingles? Well, shingles is a disease caused by a virus. It's caused by the varicella zoster virus, and it occurs when the virus that we all had as chickenpox, as children, reactivates from a nerve and reaches the skin as a very painful rash. And it's blistery and red and yes. kind of ugly and hurting, that yes. kind of thing? oozy, itchy, and painful. And it can occur in various places in the body? Yes, it does. It's um, often on the head and face, the back, around the waist. So what's unique about it is it's usually on one side of the body. Can it also affect the eyes? 
Yes, and that's a very serious condition called um, zoster ophthalmicus, and that can cause life-threatening infections and even damage the tear ducts and the retina. So who is most at risk for shingles? I mean, I know you're saying people who have had chicken pox, mm -hmm. but is it the kind of thing that anyone who's had chicken pox will develop shingles at some point? Yes. In fact, more than 90% of people have the virus right now in their bodies, in their nerves, um, and it just is waiting to reactivate. And that occurs as we get older. We lose our immun immunological memory, but also in people who are immunosuppressed. So what we need is, um, what happens is that the virus just pops out when our immune system isn't looking. Is it also a, a um, more prone to pop out, so to speak, mm -hmm. under times of stress? I mean, are there other triggers that might cause it to occur? We think so. And stress is uh, bad for the immune system, but we have no real evidence of a particular trigger other than um, immunosuppression. Um, and that occurs, and but immunosuppression often occurs, obviously, if somebody's in cancer treatment. Is that what you're referring yes, to? Yes, cancer treatment or transplants or even immunosuppression from steroids. Mm -hmm. So, But it, it seems to me that, so you're saying any, well, is it everyone who has had chickenpox is likely to get shingles, or is it that you know, it's, it's it's more random than it that. It is random, but if you live to be 80 years old, your chance of shingles is about 50-50, and that's a, that's a lot of people. So every year we, we grow older, our, our risk increases slightly, yes. So is it contagious, much like chickenpox is contagious? Um, chickenpox is extremely contagious from child to child, and shingles is the same virus. So a person who has a, an open rash can transmit that virus to children who've never had chickenpox, and they would then get chickenpox. Um, you can't give another person shingles, however, because the disease happens when it reactivates from inside our own body. So it's a little bit different than having chickenpox per se. Yes. But what you're saying is it's it's the virus can be shed yes. and then picked up by someone who is basically has had no um, immunization. That's right. But tell us, if, but children are immunized today routinely. Yes. We're very lucky in this country that, um, that we have a live vaccine called Verivax, and this is given to kids at about 12 months old. And again, a second dose in about 12 years old. So what currently... How do we treat shingles? In other words, what is the, the treatment of choice for shingles today? The best outcome would be to know that you have shingles early, within three days or so of that rash, and to get a cyclovir. It's a very easy drug to take. And it comes in several versions. Um, Valtrex and Famvir are very good other uh, names for this drug. And if it's taken early, it does reduce the duration of the rash, and most importantly, that severe pain syndrome that can linger for months. That's called postherpetic neuralgia, and the drugs are so important for uh, preventing that. Are there other drugs that you also take, like for pain, pain medication type drugs along with it? Um, of course, you can take all the over-the-counter pain drugs, but in fact, this is not an easy pain syndrome to treat because it's coming from inside the nerve. And so normal pain relievers don't help a lot, and neither do narcotics. How about something like Lyrica, which has been yeah. said to be a drug that is... Lyrica is given, or gabapentin, the Neurontin. Those really act on the nerve itself. Uh, they're not 
as helpful as we would like. But are there, as you, you were alluding to, are there sequelae, are there things, lingering symptoms that last well beyond? Mm -hmm. Yes. This post and do they ever go away, I guess? Well, um, we would hope so. Post-herpetic neuralgia can affect nerves in the, especially the face and the body. Uh, it, it, it's severe pain syndrome, very difficult to treat. And I personally have a relative, she's 99 years old and has suffered from this pain for more than 10 years. Mm. So I don't think for her it's ever going away. For most people, it lasts um, six months to a year and, and dwindles with time. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with researcher Dr. Jennifer Moffat. We're talking about shingles. So obviously you want to start your antiviral treatment quickly, as, er as early as possible. Mm -hmm. But how does one recognize shingles? <laughs> it's uh, very uh, funny at first. It starts off as tingling or itching in a strange part of the body, like the top of your head or the your shoulder blade. And people often just think, oh, that's silly, but it feels like ants are on the skin or tickling. If that gets worse or lasts more than a day and you, you think of it, call your doctor right away get in to see them, because the sooner the antiviral drugs are started, the better the outcome. But does the rash, in other words, can you treat without the rash in terms of a diagnosis? If you just have that feeling yeah. of ants on your back, right. <laughs> is that sufficient to take an antiviral? Most doctors would say no, right. but in fact, um, acyclovir is such an easy drug to take that some good doctors might give it to you just to prevent shingles if you were at risk. If you're over 50, if you just have take steroids, they might go for it. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to talk to your doctor if you have any unusual tingling, especially on one side of the body. How about, um, so basically I know that you're working on drugs to treat the mm -hmm. disease when it's full blown, mm -hmm. but how do we prevent shingles? I know that's mm. It's all over every yeah. co commercial on television these days, obviously yeah. hitting a certain demographic. Right. Who are the boomers who are over well over 50 at this point. Yeah. So what what's the current treatment, I'm sorry, preventive yeah. methodology? Merck, um makes this vaccine called Zostavax. It's a live virus, and it's uh, effective at preventing shingles in about half of people. Uh, it also prevents that pain syndrome about 90% of the time, which is very, very good and certainly worthwhile to get the vaccine to prevent a case of shingles, but especially to prevent the pain. But what's interesting is you say only half the people. Yeah. So in other words, you can get the Zostavax and still get shingles. That's right. We can't prevent it 100% with this vaccine, but most of the cases are milder. Uh, in people who've been vaccinated. So I recommend the vaccine, and it's approved for people over 60 years old who can have a live vaccine. Not everyone can. So the live vaccine is another virus? Is that what you said? No. It is the same vaccine as they give to children, but it's a much higher dose for adults. Oh, that in terms of getting your immune system? Yes. Able it's a booster. To fight. Yeah. So it's a way of fighting that invading virus, so to speak. Yes. And it getting your body ready to fight it. immune system and, and prevents our, gives us a natural boost to prevent shingles. You know? So now the new drugs that mm. are coming out for shingles, and these are drugs not to prevent, but to treat. Yes. Am I correct? Yes. So they would take the place of the acyclovir? Yes, or enhance it. So tell us about that. And that's yeah. what you're beginning to work on. That's right. I'm lucky enough to um, 
work with chemists who can develop certain drugs. And right now, the project that we're working on is with nanovirocytes. This is a small company in Connecticut that has developed nanoparticles that are loaded with drugs that fight the virus. So we're doing some tests for them, helping them identify their best leads that they can bring forward into into trials. So tell me about the mechanism, because when you say nanoparticles, mm-hmm. immediately my brain goes to these, you know... <laughs> Hard to see, never to see, very, very infinitesimally Mm -hmm. small little things that are going to be laden with drugs. So how does it work? Well, these are uh, little tiny molecules that are attracted to the viruses. So viruses have special properties, and these particles are designed to stick to them. And this then almost con- like a heat-seeking missile. Yeah. They're binding to the virus particles, and this delivers the drug right where you need it, onto the viruses and onto the infected cells. And the drug does what? The drug will stop the virus from growing, and from you know making its life cycle complete. And this blocks it in time for our own defenses to come clear out that virus. So basically, it would not be given as a preventive meth- methodology. No. It would be given when shingles showed up, much like you would give the acyclovir. Yes. Acyclovir is given as a pill, but what we're looking for is something that can be applied right to the rash, right on top of the virus, and that's something we don't have right now. So that would be the kind of thing if you had it, let's say you had a a rash, Mm full-blown rash, in various parts of your body, Mm -hmm. you would put it on all over, everywhere the rash showed itself? Is that the goal? Yeah, we would just try to create some kind of topical treatment, an ointment or a lotion, a gel that could be put right onto the rash. And would that last and basically eradicate? Mm. Well, it would reduce its spread and keep it from being contagious. That's helpful, but hopefully cause less damage to the nerves. So currently, are you doing this in mice? What's your model and how are you getting this accomplished? Well, we have a multi-step model where the compounds come to us and we test them first in cultured cells in the lab. And if they look good and potent, then we move up toward animal studies. And we use mice because they're mammals. And then we can study how the drug behaves in a, in a warm-blooded mammal. So we use a f- um, couple dozen mice and we test them there. And if the drugs look good after that test, the company can use that data to apply for um, FDA approval for a clinical trial. So where are you in this process? And when do you imagine that some of these will go to human trial? Well, we've been lucky to be involved with some compounds that aren't currently in clinical trials. Are not. They yeah. are. Oh, they are. Yes. For one of them, I'm very pleased, is called NMCT, and it is in clinical trials in Canada right now for shingles. Wow. And we found a way to apply it as a lotion, and in fact, a patent was filed for that um, process. Wow. So we're excited to be part of that. That is very exciting. Yeah. Will you be continuing to look for other Drugs, or would this, if this is, seems yeah. to be the winner out yeah. of the uh, out of these, will this be the one that you run with, so to speak? Um, I'm hopeful that my pipeline of drugs will always be full because that makes research exciting. But it's also important because viruses change very quickly, and we're always going to need. They're ahead more. of us all yes. the time. <laughs> <laughs> they mutate quickly, and we always need more drugs waiting in the wings because some people don't 
do well on certain drugs and need another one, and sometimes the virus changes and we need another drug. Very quickly, how did you get involved in shingles and why? Oh, and back in the 90s, I um, joined a lab and learned to really focus on this virus. That's when I was at Stanford University as a postdoc. And for some reason, it just captured my attention, and I've been going with it ever since. So you'll continue to work in shingles then? That's, Certainly. That's where you yes. really hope to work. Yes. Well, I have to thank you so much for coming in and sharing all this with me. I mean, bottom line, just give us a mm-hmm. last bottom line. What do people need to know for shingles then if you're going to give advice? We're what? all at risk. Watch out for strange feelings, get treatment early, and get the vaccine. Especially after you've turned 60. Yes. Thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Jennifer Moffitt. She's Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, peekaboo. Well, folks, one of the things I really love is playing peekaboo with babies and toddlers on a bus, train, plane, with a little person a row or two in front curiously gazing in my direction or in mom or dad's arms in the supermarket or on an elevator or wherever. Big mistake, baby. Peekaboo. <laughs> then watching them wonder, what is this guy doing? I don't even know him. And then usually shyly hiding behind mom or dad's neck, perhaps never to be eyeball to eyeball again, but often, joyfully often, carefully sneaking another peek, hiding again, then peeking, me peek back, then the blissful sunburst smile, and hopefully that wonderful whole body squiggly squirm, pure pleasure, squirmy joy for two, please. (laughs) Now, lately, I've been exploring something similar with fellow grown-ups, not exactly peekaboo, but same goal, funaboo. What have I discovered? No simple eyes-behind-fingers recipe yet, but it often involves a bit of risk, talking to someone you usually wouldn't, perhaps about something you usually don't, always positive with a dash of humor or appreciation about the real and now. Like on the phone with some company's nice phone person, I said, you've been helpful and friendly. I like both. Tell your boss a happy customer said you deserve a raise. (laughs) Or great hat, to the brave ones strolling by in fedorial, sartorial splendor, or to the young man I asked for directions, who, as he turned to look at me, I saw sported a waxy, wispy, pin-pointy handlebar mustache. Cool stash, man. And then playful fun right back at me. Thanks. A raise would be great. I'll play her the tape. And great hat yourself, dude. And plain old thanks. All three with that wonderful, always delightful thing called a smile. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Next up, 
some breakthrough retinal research that could combat blindness. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Stem cells. They're being used to help cure debilitating neurologic diseases, as well as in the treatment of a wide range of other diseases. We'll hear with more about an exciting new research project into their use in generating retinal cells to preserve vision. Our Dr. Michael Zuber. He's Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Biochemistry and Neuroscience and his co-investigator, Dr. Andrea Vitsian, Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology, Biochemistry, Cell and Developmental Biology, and Neuroscience, both from Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for, your Thanks for having us. This is a very exciting project that you've both been engaged in for, for a bit of time. Um, I think you're, you're always doing research, but this is kind of a, a, a little bit of a breakthrough. Um, Dr. Zuber, tell me what exactly has happened? What have you recently discovered? So in essence, in, in the past, what we've been able to show is that there are seven transcription factors that are required to make a retina. Okay, I'm going to back you up just because it's my job to make it simple for the listeners out there. Transcription factors. Okay. What are you talking about? So these are, these are genes that are in the cell. They don't go outside of the cell. And what they do is regulate the expression of other genes. So they're major regulators. They're kind of the driving the machinery, more or less. They tell the cell what to do? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so at one point, there were seven of these that you postulated or found to be responsible for what? To make a retina from pluripotent cells or stem cells, if you want to use that okay, phrase. Okay, but let's explain what that is, too, a little bit. Stem cells are these kind of nascent or... Um, baby cells, for want of a better term, that haven't decided what they want to be when they grow up quite yet. That's right. That's where the, the word pluripotent comes from, is they can become anything that, in the body, actually, that any other cell type or any differentiated cell type that you might want. Uh, the key problem, though, is to figure out how to push them towards the cell type that you want. So Right. So you might, to... you might, in free, in other, not in your research, but in other research, you might want them to become a liver. That's right. Or, That's right. or, or a heart or, or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So right now, these stem cells that you were working with, you found that seven of them were, se there were seven genes. That's right within these stem cells that would tell them to make themselves That's into right. a retina. So if we, if we gave them these seven transcription factors, these cells that would, could become anything, they were essentially forced to become retinal cells. That was, that was their directions. That's right. That's, that's right. <laughs> Instruction follow, manual. <laughs> they had to follow that recipe. That's right. That's okay. Right. All right. And so, but there's been a breakthrough yeah, beyond so this, that. Exactly. So this new research, so the question we next asked, so we knew these seven transcription factors were required, but we didn't know what they each did. What was the role that each played? And so what we're doing here is we show that these two transcription factors, one's called TBX3 and another's called PAC6, they are required to first push these stem cells to a neural fate um, and then on to a retinal fate. So they were the primary drivers, That's for right. want of a better term. In other words, these two out of the seven were the ones that had to occur or were primary and they needed to kind of 
Start the ball rolling. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Start the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. So um, this is significant, I guess, to have determined that. And we're going to talk about why that's significant. But why then, Andrea, why do this research? What, what, what's, what's the bottom line here? What are we trying to find out? Well, you know, that's a very good question. And the main problem is the people that have already lost their vision. And there's nowhere for them to turn. There's only a few avenues right now available to patients that have completely lost their cells because... In the retina, your cells don't regenerate. They are, once they're lost, they're, they're lost for good. And what we'd like to do is be able to create new cells that could be put back in the retina and replace those cells that are lost. What kinds of disease entities are we talking about? I mean, one that comes to mind, for example, that I think of with aging is like macular degeneration. Absolutely. Age-related macular degeneration is, is a, a very big problem. Um, it affects about 80% of the population over 80 um, and so that would be a, a great candidate for this sort of therapy is to replace the cells that are lost in those patients. But, but also retinitis pigmentosa I was say there is another blinding disease that could be, could be um, cured, essentially, if we could replace the cells that are lost. Of course, there's lots of problems with, with doing the surgeries, and we have to overcome lots of other barriers. But the, the first step, really, is to, to make those stem cells into retinal cells like um, Dr. Zuber is talking about. Right. So, so getting back to that, Dr. Zuber, when we talk about um, get you know getting these stem cells to behave or to follow your directions, so to speak, where do they come from to begin with? So, the the stem cells that we're using, they're coming from a frog embryo, believe it or not. And the reason that we use the Xenopus labus, which is the frog we use, is that we can easily isolate those cells. So when we fertilize a, a frog embryo and grow them up in, in bulk, we isolate a small bit of the embryo, and those are stem cells. Those are the cells that, if we treat them the right way, we can make them muscle, we can make them skin, we can make them even retina. But they become frog muscle and frog That's skin. That's right. That's exactly right. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. They don't become human retina. Exactly right. But the power of using Xenopus is that we can very easily overexpress genes like we're talking about today, or even knock them down if we need to, and that the genes that make a frog eye are essentially identical to the gene that make a human eye. So it is really translatable. Absolutely. Wow. That's very interesting. So how did you actually do this? I mean, how did you come, how did you find these drivers? So, so we had, like I said earlier, we had overexpressed these genes in these frog pluripotent cells, these frog stem cells, and shown that when we transplant those cells, we, they go ahead and make a retina. Um, and so what we can do in Xenopus very easily is inject these genes. I'm just going to stop you for a sure. minute. You keep referring to Xenopus. I want people to know that's the frog. That's the, the type frog. of frog. So yeah, so okay, like go ahead. Go frog. ahead. So we can, we can inject the frog, developing frog embryo and then isolate these stem cells. And because we've injected them early, those stem cells are expressing the genes. And then we can transplant those cells to a place on the, the frog embryo, developing embryo. And it'll, if, if the experiment worked, it'll make an eye. It'll make an eye anywhere on the embryo. It'll make embryo. an eye anywhere on the embryo, exactly right. Wow. And so then what we can do is we can say, well, what are the conditions we have to use? Do we have to use all seven of them? And so this graduate student, what she did was she said, she asked a simple question, how many do I need? And she worked it out that it was just these two that she needed to generate a, a retina. Now, that, that's, I guess, the question I would ask here. Though, do you, are you then saying that the other five are inconsequential? Not at no. all. No. Not at all. To so get clear. what we're talking about are the very first steps. We're not actually talking about... So what these two genes do is they take the pluripotent cells, first make them uh, neural. Neural meaning neurologic. That's right. They that's orient right. them towards, rather than being muscle, they tell them you're going to be nerve. Exactly right. right. So they become any kind of neural 
progenitor cells. So that's where, where they're going for. Right. So, so the TBX3 says you're going to become neural. But neural can be an eye, neural can be a brain, neural can be a spinal cord. Exactly. So um, that's so the job. The second job is PAC6's job. PAC6 tells the TBX3 expressing cells, now you're going to make retina. Wow. Okay. Now the other genes that you mentioned, the other um, five genes that we worked with, their job is either to keep the retina cells proliferating or to allow them to become the different seven different cell types that are generated in the retina. So that, that are required that's to, right. to, to be a functioning, function, yeah, a functioning that's exactly right. So okay. the TBX3 and the PAC6, like you said earlier, they get the ball rolling, they make you a retinal progenitor cell, but it's these other genes that probably dictate what kind of retinal cells will be generated. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with eye researchers, Dr. Michael Zuber and Dr. Andrea Bitsian. <clears throat> and we're talking about their breakthrough research into the development, really, of a retina, which is... Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So why, I guess, Andrea or Dr. Vitsian, why is this so important? Well, you know, the whole idea is that we'd like to take the cells that are pluripotent, these stem cells, and push them towards this retinal lineage. And if we can do that with simply adding these two transcription factors, these two proteins, and directing their their fate towards a, a, just a retinal cell fate, then we could give a clinician just retinal cells to be able to transplant in the back of the eye. What, the main problem with cell replacement therapy is that the pluripotent cells, because they could become all cell types in the body, could also become cancer cells. So that's the worry. Oh, that's a very interesting point. So I think you, you don't want any kind of mixture of anything. You really just want one type of cell, the retinal so cell. So when you say they could become a cancer, I mean, the idea is that they're kind of can be kind of go off the reservation, so to speak. Right. <laughs> they can become renegade. Yes, and yes, then, and that's and the worry. continue to replicate in ways that are destructive as opposed to constructive. That's right. Exactly. So, and so, so right now in, in Japan, there's clinical trials using uh, stem cells that have been made into the retinal pigment epithelial, which it is um, the support cells of the photoreceptors in the back of the eye. And some of those trials have been, were stopped for a while because they did find some renegade cells and they wanted to make sure that the patients were safe. So this is a very important point. But at your point now, you're still working with basically basic science. You're not, it hasn't, it's not translated into human cl uh, clinical trials. But what's interesting is that elsewhere in the world, they are not ahead of you, but they are doing a similar research, but they're actually engaged with human trials. Absolutely, and and that's why it's important that we understand the basic under, the basic biology of what these cells are becoming and how they're becoming the retinal cells, because then we have a clear idea of how to control their development and be able to give, like I said, the clinician just the retinal cells that they need for the cell replacement. It therapy. also strikes me that the the one underlying commonality with stem cells is that when you're using them, there's an unlimited supply of one's own stem cells, and they are. Um, you would not have a rejection problem. So that, isn't that true with whatever you're doing with stem cells? Yeah, that's, that's one of the distinct advantages of using stem cells and with using induced pluripotent stem cells. So you could take a patient's own skin cells, for example, reprogram them so they go back to the baby cells of, of a stem cell, and then using the techniques that we're using, push them back towards just the retinal cells, and, and those transplanted cells would not be rejected by the patient's own body. That... I think is an incredible selling point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Almost 
you know, more than almost any other because as we listen to all the kind of problems with transplants of various kinds, one of the biggest ones is the rejection factor and all the immunosuppressive drugs people have to take in order for them to be successful and all the other potential side effects and issues. So Absolutely. So no, this is a very big advance that the induced pluripotent stem cells were discovered. So who who helped you with this? I mean, did you guys do this alone? <laughs> well, I had a graduate student by the name of Zara Murahari, um, who was who was he really enjoyed this challenge. The of those seven genes I told you about, only one of them there was no clear link to retinal development, and that was the TBX3. And so Zara got very interested in that, and she's trying to figure out well why is it important then. And so so Zara Murahari was one person that worked on it, and then. Uh, uh, Reina Martinez de Luna, who was a postdoc in the lab, also worked on this project and was very instrumental in helping. You know, it strikes me, I don't want to run out of time, but it's really kind of um, incredibly striking the, the level of research that's going on right here in central New York. This kind of research is really kind of groundbreaking, cutting edge, of the highest quality, and I don't think most people in our community have any idea that you guys are doing this kind of work here and that you have this kind of quality. No, absolutely. Help and I mean, as well. we, we are very proud of our ophthalmology department. We have excellent colleagues uh, who we love going to work and, and talking to every day. And uh, we're just blessed that this is such a, a great department and it's nationally recognized. We go to international meetings, people know about us and they're excited that we're that we're here. So who's supporting it besides Upstate's program? Are, have you gotten funding NIH funding, where is the money coming from? That's right. So it's um, the National Eye Institute is a major funding source. Um, the Lions Club in central New York really? here also gives us a lot of a lot of funding, very important. And then the other uh, people that give us our research to prevent blindness is another uh, group that supports our work. So very briefly, we only have a little bit of time left. Where do you think this is going to go? How soon or how long will it be before this translates somehow into human trials? Oh, it's, it's going to be a while. Um, there, Like I said, those clinical trials are ongoing in Japan, and there's other clinical trials in the U.K. and here in the U.S. using those support cells, those retinal pigment epithelium cells. But really, we'd like to eventually have um, have these retinal cells available to clinicians, and that could take, oh, I, I don't know, Mike, what do you say, 10, 20 years? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we're a bit so way off. We're, we're a, a bit, bit off. off. But, yeah. the, but the reality is there is hope. Right. And that somebody who otherwise would be blind might actually be able to see. Yeah. So I want to thank hope. you both. I'm, I, I have to really applaud you both for this incredible research and wonderful thank work. You. Thank you so much for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Michael Zuber, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology, Biochemistry, and Neuroscience, and his co-investigator, Dr. Andrea Vician, Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology, Biochemistry, Cell and Developmental Biology, and Neuroscience at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Philip Berry is a physician with the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. He writes a weekly blog on medical ethics, patient-doctor communication, and end-of-life care. He's a novelist as well as a poet. His poem, Breathless, manages to convey how a difficult diagnosis impacts both the patient and a caring physician. Here is Breathless. 
knee to knee, skirting the desk, ignore its careless props. The air between us is heavy. The words I choose will change your life. Calm and clear, I am careful. They pass into your mind, solidify, take form and meaning. I watch your mouth slacken. You can no longer see me clearly. Your world is collapsing. My lips continue to move, pale automaton. The space we share has a pacified, early grief rising from a black fire, cold flames drawn to moist skin, consuming the future. The air is thin now. We are both breathless. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we get an update on teen suicide and depression, plus the new emphasis on the hospitalized patient's satisfaction. And we'll get the real facts about vitamin and herbal supplements, what you need to know. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.